Hello, and welcome to 37th and the World, the official podcast of the Georgetown Journal of International Affairs. Gajia is a student-run flagship publication of Georgetown University's School of Foreign Service. On 37th and the World, we dive into key global trends and speak directly with the experts working on the issues in areas ranging from conflict and security, human rights and development, science and technology, society and culture, business and economics, and global governance. Art never exists within a vacuum. It is always embedded within a broader historical context and political interpretations. Frank Herbert's 1965 science fiction epic Dune, currently in the midst of a two-part film adaptation, exemplifies this dynamic. Dune narrates the story of a humanity dispersed across the stars 20,000 years into the future. It focuses on the young nobleman, Paul Atreides, as he acts upon a prophecy to control the planet Arrakis and its valuable spice, which makes space travel possible, with the messianic command of Arrakis's indigenous Fremen people. Far from a pulpy adventure tale, Herbert incorporated environmental science, history, religious thought, and political philosophy from the nearly 200 books he consulted to write Dune, resulting in a rich tome with commentary on religious and cultural synthesis, resource-based geopolitics, and colonialism and anti-colonial resistance. In this interview, Jujia covers these themes and more with Harish Storani, a PhD candidate in history at Princeton University, who is also dubbed the leading post-colonial Dune scholar of our time. It's a pleasure to have you here on the on the 37th and World podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's an honor. I'm excited to talk all things Dune. <laughs> <laughs> so to begin with um with the episode, here's our, our first question. So if you've written um, extensively about what you've called the Muslimness of Dune, would you mind explaining exactly what you mean by that? Sure. By Muslimness of Dune, you know, I think when I wrote that article, I was really responding to something that I saw in a lot of discourse surrounding Dune, both from people who were critiquing it and who loved it, which is that, you know, the tendency is to say, you know, what makes Dune so interesting is he's, in, he's uh, referencing uh, Arab and Islamic history, and he's using these Arabic terms and Islamic terms. Uh, and there's sometimes a tendency to say, you know, that's the limit of, her, of the, the engagement with Islam and with the Middle East and North Africa more broadly that Herbert brought to the Dune novels. And what I was trying to say there is that the engagement isn't just a purely sort of linguistic engagement or a sort of aesthetic surface level engagement with Islam, but is actually something much deeper that goes beyond just all these cool languages and references, but he's actually having a conversation within Islam and within these various different cultures um, uh, that goes to a much deeper and more profound level. How commonplace do you see uh, discussions about the Islamic inspirations of Dune outside of the United States, um, especially among uh, Muslim communities around the world, um, such as within Southwest Asia and North Africa, where um, many of Herbert's inspirations originated from? I, I can't speak a little bit more, I think, to what the reception has been um, of the novels, which is pretty positive. Uh, I mean, I think, you know, there are, it's a little bit of self-selection in terms of the people who are going to read Dune are going to be these sci-fi <laughs> geeks and nerds like, like me, at least. Um, so they, they all like it anyways. But my, my sense, for example, the Arabic translator of Dune, um, yeah, I, th I think in his version of tra the, the translation, I believe he has to sort of talk about or at least when he was doing the translation, he had to engage with the fact that Herbert is using all of these Arabic terms, but he's also translating it from a presumably English text. 
So I think, you know, some readers who are native Arab speakers and read it in Arabic were sort of, they didn't even realize until they went and looked up the original English, how much of it was influenced because you can't, it's hard to like, it's an interesting translation problem. And I will say that a lot of people from the Middle East and North Africa uh, and Muslims in general beyond, I'm from, my dad's from Pakistan, my mom is from Dominican Republic, uh, have felt very, um, they, 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 they've really felt a connection to Dune, even if they've had qualms about some of the is issues, which we, we can get into, but they have felt a very deep connection with the novels. People were very upset with uh, the, obviously the lack of representation, that's kind of like a moot point, <laughs> lack of Arab and Muslim representation in the film. Um, but uh, I think the, with respect to the, the most recent film, uh, some of the accent work, I think was, <laughs> was very frustrating and the pronunciation of the Arabic terms, and even just when they're speaking in English, their accent. Uh, but also I've heard that a lot of people didn't really have that critique and just really loved it and felt that they were represented. So there's a sort of broad swath, but also I would say I'm not really an authority. That's just kind of what I've heard down the grapevine. <laughs> would you mind bringing up, I guess, some specific examples as well as um, any other cultural, religious, or historical inspirations that stand out in Dune um, other than those Islamic or um, Swana influences? Non-Islamic, non-Arab, Middle Eastern references. Uh, yeah, there's actually a lot. I mean, part of what Herbert was doing was thinking about decolonization uh, uh, across the world, not just in MENA, Middle East, North Africa, or Swana, right? Uh, and so, I mean, the, the prominent, most prominent one outside of Middle East and North Africa, I would say, would be indigenous experiences within the United States, especially uh, the Quileute tribe, which Daniel Imavar has been writing really great stuff about, uh, and you can go look that up. Um, uh, but I would say beyond even that, he's in, he engages with some Navajo traditions. Um, there are references in the later novels to the Murrah uh, and Arawak peoples from Brazil, what's now Brazil and the Caribbean. Um, and so for me, as being Dominican, <laughs> the Arawak, I'm like, yeah. And then there are all, also references to uh, Southeast Asia. And then of course, with Buddhism to uh, uh, East Asia, uh, and, and then, you know, there's a huge Russian and Ottoman influence, especially with bringing in Leslie Blanche's book, Sabres of Paradise, and the story of the sort of Caucasian Muslims. And then, of course, also as a Pakistani, I have to shout out the, the, uh, that the Tulilaksu uh, group, which is another group in the Dune universe, uh, they are basically based on the peoples of the, what's called the Northwest uh, Frontier region between Afghanistan and Pakistan. So there's a lot of Pakistan, Afghanistan references, and then some, some Indian stuff comes in as well. Dune is probably drawing on a lot of uh, uh, Black experiences, uh, especially in Africa and even in North Africa, and sort of complicating the ways we think about North Africa and the rest of Africa. Um, uh, and then I would say even some of the later novels are clearly uh, talking about like Christian, Jewish, Muslim relations in Ethiopia and Yemen. Uh, there's like, you can go, and then he talks about the Kalahari people, which is in Southern Africa. I could keep going forever, but I want to make sure I get everything out there. While the United States has had an intense involvement with Middle Eastern oil since the 1920s, a deep association between oil and the Middle East really appeared to increase among the American public around the 1970s when OPEC imposed an embargo against the United States. Later U.S. interventions, such as the U.S. invasion of Iraq in 2003, have deepened this connection. The author Frank Herbert himself stated that the scarcity and control over water and spice in Dune um, is analogous to real world oil scarcity. What do you think Dune says bro more broadly about imperialism and how its extractive geopolitics operate? 
Yeah, that's a that's a complicated question. Um, what does it say broadly about imperialism? I mean, it's often read as this anti-imperial tome, the whole series. Um, and one could have a debate, uh, which may, we may not have time for, about how anti-imperial it really is. I mean, uh, it, it is very clear to me that he is thinking about, like I said before, decolonization and anti-imperial movements. And that very much plays into how he thinks about jihad. Although I think, and we can talk about this later, the, the depiction of jihad uh, even goes beyond the idea of it being an anti-imperial, sort of refer referencing the Sufi anti-imperial jihadist movements. I think it, go it goes beyond that, but that is one thing that Herbert is definitely thinking about. And then of course the red power movement. Um, and you can, he, 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 sa he says that Chom is OPEC, um, Chom is the corporation in, in Dune that wants to control the spice industry, which is the spice is the precious resource on this planet. Um, and you know, there, there, you, can, you can go endlessly into all the ways that he thinks about imperialism, but I think there are other ways in which one can complicate and critique how, how anti-imperial Herbert was, especially in the way he understood uh, agency and power structures. Um, touching upon what you just mentioned briefly there about jihad, it goes into um, the next question about your, uh, your Washington Post article um, published after the release of Dune's recent movie adaptation in which you mentioned how the film is both more orientalist and less daring than its source material. Um, the, uh, the absence of the term jihad in the Dune movie, which was used um, prolifically in the book, was one source of criticism that you and others have had about the recent adaptation. Um, while jihad is an essential concept within the universe of the original book, the movie instead sticks to the term crusade. Does erasing this particular Islamic inspiration leave harmful interpretations of, of Islam to dominate US popular media and political discourse? Um, yeah, I mean, I can, I'll, I'll address that question in two parts. First is jihad, and then first is how jihad fits into the broader question of the film. Um, so yeah, in the film, they got rid of jihad. I'm, it's pretty obvious from the interviews because they didn't want to have an because they, they think that jihad has some association with uh, uh, Islamic terrorism, at least in the, in the public eye. They're not saying that's the case, but the public thinks that uh, in their view, the filmmaker's view. Therefore, it's better to just delete it uh, <laughs> than put it in the film and risk having this potentially problematic association that will stir up Islamophobia, um, which is a laudable goal. But I think, you know, I think a better thing would have been to, you know, I always say you, you don't, uh, you don't fix a race problem or a representation problem by deleting the people who are being represented. <laughs> um, you would deal with it. You say, okay, this is a problem. How do we deal with it? And I think what's so great about Dune is he, he when he's thinking about jihad, he's thinking about it in very complicated ways. And, you know, I think just avoiding the problem just sort of leaves the status quo as it is. And this is a major tentpole tenfold feature. I know there's all these things about oh, Denis Villeneuve as this artistic director. How well would the film have, have been? To be honest, I, I wouldn't care if the film only did the first third of Dune and then it just failed at the box office, but was great otherwise. <laughs> that would have been a success to me. Um, because, you know, in the novels, jihad, so there's like three levels of thinking about it. I think of it as like the brain meme, right? Like the, the first tier of the brain meme is jihad is terrorism, which is not really what the books are doing. The second tier is Jihad is this anti-colonial Sufi revolution, which is sort of what the book is doing. But the third tier, if you really read the book carefully, is that Jihad doesn't come directly from the Fremen, the indigenous people. It partly does, but it also is basically a result. It's almost explicitly described as such, as a, as a result 
of uh, a missionary, uh, pseudo-Christian missionary imperialist forces coming in and influencing the Fremen. And it's really only after, and it's not really that the Fremen, it's partly that they're, you know, these prone to fanaticism, but it's a little bit more nuanced because it's really, it doesn't come from Fremen tradition per se. I mean, jihad is this term that, you know, it's exchanged with crusade and holy war throughout the novels. But in the first novel, the, the beginning of the change in the Fremen that leads to the jihad in the later books is when they begin to become modernized because the imperialists bring in reforms to their customs. And it's the change in their customs that results in the jihad. Uh, so it's really the, it's the Western, it's the way in which they become Western that makes them these, that turns, the, that leads to the jihad, which is this complicated thing and has problems in itself. But that is such a more interesting way to grapple with it. And even some, a lot of historians who study jihad have talked about how uh, contemporary jihadist movements, uh, they exercise what's called in Islam ishtihad, uh, sort of independent reasoning. And that has a particular place in the history of Islamic uh, uh, law and sharia, um, and then it's a legal analysis, but the way in which contemporary jihadists use it is often disconnected from that legal tradition. And it's because they're prioritizing reason in a, in a way that was disconnected from, from traditional Islamic legal customs. Um, uh, and and the, reason, the reason that reason was becoming such a, a sort of ideal to strive towards was in part because of uh, missionaries that were promoting this thing of, oh, your, your tradition is this stagnant tradition that you need to apply reason, when there was already reason within it, but the jihadists, the, what we call the violent jihadists that we don't like, right, are sort of, they're, they're in some ways just as Western and modern as the missionaries. Anyways, I'll stop there. But I'll, the only thing I'll just say in general about the jihad thing is that I think people like to focus on jihad because it's such a sexy sort of hot button issue in the films. But for me, jihad, like the there are all those nuances that you lose, but I think there are so many terms like that. I mean, jihad is just a, a term that exists in the universe. That's not, you know, meant to be this huge thing that's gonna hit you over the head. And there are so many terms like that throughout the novels, which they just cut out in the film. And each of those terms has those kinds of layers that you can bring in. Uh, several years ago, you wrote about the, the failure of post 9-11 science fiction and how it reaffirmed US bigotry about Muslims. Uh, much of the literature you came across reinforced Islamophobia and jingoistic rhetoric, rhetoric that exploded during and since the early 2000s. However, almost a decade later, do you still observe the same harmful tropes in American science fiction? Is the Islamophobia, I mean, is, uh, is xenophobia just as commonplace or has the decreasing U.S. government and media publicity about uh, Muslim majority regions uh, possibly impacted any changes? Yeah, thanks for digging up that that article. That was one of my first, I think maybe my first academic publication. Uh, I don't fully endorse everything in that piece, but I do think that there is a, the seed of the argument, I think still holds true, sadly. <laughs> I will say that I haven't been as attentive in reading contemporary science fiction in the, what is it, 10 years since that was published. Um, but I think to speak directly to the topic we're discussing today, which is Dune, you know, the argument I made in that article was I looked at science fiction, mainly American science fiction, about the quote unquote Muslim world, very broadly defined. And that can be a problematic category, but take it as it is. Um, and how science, American science fiction dealt with the Muslim world before and after 9-11. And, you know, 9-11, I don't think is really a turning point for Islamophobia. Maybe, you know, 1979 is better. You can make all these debates, right, about the long history of the surveillance state and 
racial profiling and all these things, right? Um, but I think it is a turning point in, in some cultural understandings of Islam, particularly in, uh, I think Islam after 9-11, at least for my argument in American science fiction, dealing with the Muslim world, began to think of Muslims and Islam and Muslim cultures in almost a, a very abstract, pure religious sense as they're you know, the threat to our freedom, their religious fanatics, yada, yada. Whereas beforehand, even the problematic depictions, the religious aspects were wrapped up with the politics and culture of these places. So for example, I rewatched Lawrence of Arabia um, after watching the Dune, the recent Dune film. Uh, and I actually, Lawrence of Arabia, I think is a great film. One of my favorite films, actually. It is also pretty Orientalist, but I will say it is less Orientalist than the 2021 movie. <laughs> Um, and I think part of it is because of this, that it's, it's uh, it, the, first of all, there's more representation. It's not a lot of representation, but there's more, <laughs> sadly, um, as if, you know, the screenwriters of the recent film say, oh, you know, Arabs weren't a part of our world, in the, our world, quote unquote, in the 50s and 60s. But Lawrence of Arabia came out of 50s and 60s and they had Arab actors, so what are they talking about? But also it's dealing speci with specific historical events, right? And I think what's so great about the, 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 the book Dune is Herbert isn't just analogizing to Lawrence of Arabia and to so much else, um, but he's also projecting, he's doing speculation. What would, you know, Bedouin mixed with Murrah, with Quileute, with uh, Pakistani, Afghanistan people, what would they look like if they all mixed and then dispersed and had all these diverse cultures 20,000 years in the future? Um, it's an exercise in projection. It doesn't treat real and, and it's and the religious aspects are wrapped up with the culture and the politics. It doesn't treat religion as this pure abstraction. Um, whereas the 2021 film exactly illustrates what I called the failure of post 9 11 science fiction, which is that Islam and Muslims become this sort of abstract, in this case, almost unnamed entity that, you know, it, it, the way they do the world building. So, for example, the music. The, the singing, the, the, everyone says that this, that's Arab, Arab woman elevation. It's not. It's not, maybe they wanted it to sound like that, but it's actually based on, I think, uh, South Indian, Jewish, and Celtic influences. Now, the Jewish influences, that's great, because Herbert was drawing on Judaism. Yes, hurrah. But everything else, not really. And I mean, really, what, what clearly, if you look at that, and then I can talk, I'll stop now, because I've spoken for a while, but you can walk through all the way they designed the fashion and the architecture that maybe to us, I think sometimes we, we want to have rosy eyes and see what we want to see in the film and see the representation we want. But if you actually look at the inspiration and all the interviews of how they designed the fashion and the music and the architecture, barely any of it is based on any idea of this projection into the future of what these cultures and religions would look like. Uh, it's all basically, oh, we're 20,000 years in the future what would a city in a very hot, sandy planet look like? Okay, brutalist architecture with 20 foot deep walls. And that's how you get Arakeen. That's exactly how, and some, some vague rumination about ancient Egypt, which doesn't come in in the Dune novels until like the third book. Um, so it's like this abstract idea. It's like this white person's abstract idea of what the future is supposed to be. Rather than doing what Herbert did, which is project into the future and draw the cultural specificity and play with it. Just by um, comparing Herbert's vision of Dune to that of the director, um, Denis Villeneuve, it appears that Herbert approaches 
very clearly as cultural inspirations with much more significant consideration and attention to detail. However, what do you believe were the greatest limitations of his original work? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, it's hard because, and I've said this elsewhere, every time I have a question about Dune or a critique of it, uh, I find myself questioning my own question because, and I think there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, partly it's because it's very hard to talk about the novels in the abstract uh, because, you know, even every 30 pages, there are so many references and themes and ideas that just to tease out those 30 pages can take forever <laughs> and, and you won't come to an answer. You know, partly it's because Herbert, uh, he didn't quite know what he was saying. He was figuring things out along the way and he was even questioning himself. So a position you might find in one place may not be in another place. And the other complicated issue is that the book is not only what I call uh, intertextual, but intratextual. And in that, you know, Herbert, he was reading history books. So he knew the idea of footnotes and annotations and appendices and commentaries. And all the, all the books, they have quotes, little epigraphs before each chapter. And then there's some appendices in the first book and a glossary. And there, you know, Dune fans will debate endlessly about which narrative is actually the authoritative narrative and which did Herbert mean to be maybe the imperial narrative or the Fremen narrative or what, right? Uh, so it's very, and then Herbert himself says that I, he says, I, I, I like debating and I like to take positions that I don't agree with. And so characters will take positions, but it's like, who, who exactly, who are you agreeing with here? Uh, and he even names this at one point in the later novels, one of the characters says that he practices takia, um, which in, in Islam can mean if you're in an oppressed situation, you can sort of be deceitful or not forthright about your, your Muslimness or something, or, you know, it's something to, to, if it's necessary to protect yourself. Um, and so one of the later characters says, oh, I practice takia. And what he means by that is he, he'll write fake history books <laughs> um, and pretend like it's, it's some real historical character and then everyone believes it. And that's kind of what you're doing is, but for the future. So, sorry, I didn't actually answer the question, but I wanted to preface that with that comment, that it's very hard to say anything direct. But I think for me, the biggest problem isn't quite the white savior aspect. And even isn't, I think partly it's a problem of Fremen agency, um, but I think there's a difference between the agency of the Fremen and how much screen, quote unquote, screen time or page time the Fremen get. And there's a way to tell a story in which characters have agency, even if they're not on the page as much. Um, although not being on the page is kind of like its own problem, um, which I agree with. And, and I think, but I think for me, the two biggest issues are, I don't think the book is very intersectional, any of the books, and that the, I think the Benny Gesserit get a lot of, of, of play, but the, um, I mean, the Benny Gesserit may be brown and black as well, but I think the more strongly coded Fremen woman especially, for example, Cheney uh, does not get um, uh, much play at all in the books and is really downplayed in their role. That, to me, is the biggest problem. But I think the even deeper problem is that I think Herbert's worldview, I mean, he was, he was leaning right in his politics, and his worldview was a very individual-centered worldview. And even though his whole thing is about the community, his idea of community development and empowerment is through each individual's sort of sacrifice to the, to the community. And so, the, so, you know, when Paul and the Bene Gesserit come to reform the Fremen, the, those imperialists in Herbert's mind are just as, as at fault as the Fremen are in accepting the um, imperial implantations. 
And so there is some truth in that in the sense that it, colonial projects always have sort of, it's never just, you know, the white people and the brown people and the black, right? There's always sort of mixtures and there's Creole elites and, you know, people who become part of the system like kind in the novel. Um, but ultimately I think Herbert, he sees that as an, a symmetry. Whereas I think in reality, there are power structures and Paul has a lot of power. Um, and there's a sense in which that individualist idea of agency gives the Fremen a lot of power because it says that they're not just subservient to a power structure, they're not slaves to the system, right? But I think on the other hand, there's a way in which it elides the fact that there is a difference between the white outsider and the black and brown indigenous, indigenous people. How do you believe speculative fiction can advance beyond um, the limitations you just described within the world building of the original Dune? Uh, more specifically, for example, um, how can the Western, the Western gaze be separated from such a diverse field of uh, literature and popular culture and depictions of, uh, of Islam particularly? For example, your novella, Technologies of the Self, incorporates a very personalized and spiritual jihad into um, a coming-of-age narrative across time. Yeah, thanks for that question. Yeah, I actually, thanks for the plug. I, I actually totally forgot, uh, even as I've been writing all this Dune stuff, that the, um, the, the main character of my novel, Technologies of the Self, his name is Jihad. <laughs> so there we go. Uh, and there are Dune metaphors in that book as well, uh, Sandworm metaphors. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think the sort of the simple answer that everyone's throwing around with respect to the, in response to the, the issues with the novel Dune and the film adaptations is we need more black and brown writers, or not that we need more, but we need to amplify. They're already there, we need to amplify um, their voices as you're doing here. Thank you. <laughs> so, you know, read my book, Technologies of the Self. <laughs> but uh, uh, I think it's more, I think it's a little bit more than that. I mean, I, I like representation is important and there's a way in which, you know, someone speaking from their own point of view, you can't replace that. Uh, but I think on the other hand, uh, you know, that what I love so much about Herbert is he, he just did a lot of work and he researched it. And I mean, he's, there are letters and stuff where he apparently he has Semitic and Arab friends. Um, and he doesn't seem to be saying it like in the way that people say, oh, I have black friends, right? Uh, and he's kind of just saying it casually. Um, and, and even though when I'm reading his books, even when I have issues, I, I, I can tell that there is someone there with him. <laughs> There's someone who was telling him stuff. Uh, and I think, you know, it's not just, your representation is, is important, but I think also just a matter of being respectful, doing the research, doing the work. Um, and taking your character seriously. And I think that's something else I would add is, is if you're writing a good story, you know, I think there's a tendency to separate the idea of telling a good story and the politics issue. And I think I even tend to separate that. And it is true sometimes that you can have, a, you know, Lawrence of Arabia, I love the film, even though it has problems, so many problems. Um, but I think there's also a way in which, you know, a good story is, is, is also good politics. Um, and Herbert, for all his problems, when he does take his Fremen characters seriously, like Stilgar, for example, Stilgar is one of the most interesting characters in the whole, especially in the, the, those first three Dune novels. His whole arc actually mirrors Paul's arc. And then, and even though there's, there are ways in which he definitely lacks agency in the narrative, he's still this fully realized, internal, complicated, changing person. He's a real person that exists in the world. And Herbert took him seriously as a real person. Um, and I think for all his problems, I think in some ways, you know, the solution to one solution to the problems of, you know, science fiction and speculative fiction and the Western gaze is just take the characters seriously. 
And if you take the characters seriously and their world seriously, and their Muslimness, their brownness, their blackness seriously as part of who they are and as having internal contradictions within it, I think that itself is a is a perfect recipe for producing great political speculative fiction with rich character work. I've always been pretty fascinated with depictions of imperialism within Western media, especially like in the movie industry, because so often it's from the perspective of the colonizers. So when you engage with text, for example, like Heart of Darkness or the movie um, that was inspired by Apocalypse Now, you lead to a really fascinating dialogue about not just imperialism in itself, but how it's perceived. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, yeah, I actually, the, the, the two sort of works of fiction that are in film or or a novel that are often, I find are often compared in public and in my head to Dune is uh, Heart of Darkness and um, Aladdin. <laughs> There's a sense in which, you know, Aladdin, you're kind of throwing together all of these hodgepodge cultures. It's kind of this ambiguous Middle Eastern, South Asian-ish place, I guess. Um, uh, but I, I, I think actually Dune is still different. It's still problematic in the ways we've talked about, but it's still very different from those works. I mean, it's different from Aladdin because of its specificity, like I already spoke about. Uh, and then it's all—it's different even, I think, from Conrad. I mean, it has that similarity of sort of the, the white man goes into the African place and has a crisis of conscience, right? Uh, there's that similarity, but I think it sort of stops there because I remember reading, in, in high school, I was always extremely frustrated with everything we read in school <laughs> and how racist it was, but I never felt that with Dune. Um, I mean, I, I have problems with Dune, but I didn't, feel that level of like visceral reaction that I felt when I felt when I read uh, Heart, Heart of Darkness in high school. I, I just really hated that book. I mean, it's a, it's a great, like, it's a great read, but um, I think that this is where the political and storytelling comes together, I think, because the character work, I think, is lacking. You get, especially, I think it was his wife or something at the end, it kind of gets short tripped. And then especially the the Congolese peoples, he literally at some point describes them as like aliens or Martians or something. And there's a sense in which you can tell Heart of Darkness in any location and it works. Uh, I think you could you can do the Vietnam version of it and it works. Great film, right? Then <laughs> you can also do the, you can set it on Mars. Like he said, he compared them to Martians or aliens or whatever. You can set it on Mars and it would be the same story. I mean, you have Ad Astra, the Brad Pitt film is, is the same thing, right? And you don't even have any aliens in, in that, right? There are no indigenous people. And I think that's what I'm talking about, the abstract idea of the other. Whereas Herbert, his idea of the other is problematic, but it's not abstract. It's very particular. And they have lives, they have, they have storylines. Not all of them do as much as I would like, but they do have story. You have people like Stilgar who are these rich characters uh, that you just, I think for me that, I think, you know, on a prose level, Conrad is way, way above, <laughs> above Herbert. But I think on the level of um, uh, drawing out a rich tapestry of different characters in a world, Herbert is way, way beyond that. Um, but I think the other thing I would just add is, uh, I, I, I agree, I think, you know, you need to go beyond the colonial gaze. But also I think there's, you know, Succession is a, is a great, is a great show. Um, and I don't think it's celebrating those characters, those, you know, rich, crazy rich, white people, right? Um, and there's a, you know, I think we have to have room for all kinds of stories. Um, and we do need to make space for sure, structurally in terms of the stories we support for stories that are not from that perspective, even if it's critical. Um, but I would say there's still, there's always value in sort of engaging critically from all directions.
This was 37th and the World. Thank you, Bahadur Sturani. Please be sure to subscribe and leave a comment and rating on whichever streaming platform you use. For this interview and other insightful interviews and articles, please check out georgetown.edu. Thank you for listening, and see you next time.